Well, it's good to see y'all this evening. I'm telling you, we had a good trip, but we sure missed you guys, and we missed our church, and we are glad, glad to be home. It went well. Um, we, uh, I think the Lord really helped me, and I think my message went well, and it was well received, and Dexter preached a great message, and I enjoyed Ronnie's. We got to see a lot of a lot of people, kids, and, and family, and just had a really good time. But boy, we were we were definitely ready to get back. Um, just have a couple of announcements before I get started. One is uh, Charlie just got this email from Hannah that Riverside Baptist Church is, over Baton Rouge is uh, going to have a one day women's conference. Um, September 16th from 8.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. And we want to go ahead and announce it because if you register early, it only costs you $10. If you wait till after August 31st, it's $20, so half the price. So if you're interested in going, um, Charlie will have it and you can talk to her and get the information. But anyway... Anyway, that's the announcement. Um, so we're going to be back in uh, Joel chapter 2 this evening. <clears throat> Joel chapter 2, verse uh, 28 through 32. And the title is uh, The Promise of the Spirit. Before we, go on, before we go to Joel, I'm going to read to you from Jeremiah and kind of introduce, actually from Jeremiah 31, I want to introduce our passage from Joel with this new covenant promise from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 35. And the Lord says through the prophet, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Judah after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. <clears throat> so we're going to be in Joel chapter 2, and our text is verse 28 through 32. It's going to seem very familiar to you because it hasn't been that long since we went through this exact same text quoted by Peter in the book of Acts. Joel 2, 28 through 32. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. 
and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. From Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word, and for your gospel, and for your promises. Oh, we just thank you so much for your salvation and your Holy Spirit. We ask that you be with us this evening, that you open this text up to us, that you just help us to, to glory in you and what you've done for us in, in this new covenant that you have given us in Christ. Thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last time we were in Joel, we saw God switch gears in Joel's second, it was Joel's second oracle, which is what we were in. And we got to verse 18, and, and the Lord switched gears. And he went from judgment. He was pronouncing judgment on Judah. And he was talking about the judgment that's coming in this massive army that's going to strip the land and, and the famine and the drought and all of the curses that are coming on Judah and how they're going to be carried away, carried off into captivity. And in verse 18, he switches gears and he starts talking about restoration. And he promises a future restoration for all of his people in verses 18, or in verses, uh, yeah, in verses 18 through 27. <clears throat> the basic themes of God's promised restoration that were illustrated in that oracle were God's provision for his people, and not just provision, but provision over and above anything that they can ask or imagine. And he illustrated and he repeated it in the language of overabundance in the, the production of their staple food crops. And, and the overproduction of Judah's staple crops of grain, grapes, and olives. That was their main um, agricultural crops and that was their staples. And so they would have lots of grain, they'd have plenty of wine and plenty of olive oil. And that's, that means that when those things are in abundance, then, then they are having prosperity. And so God illustrated his provision for his people, not just through an abundance, but through an overabundance, and he repeated it. And then second, he said that his provision for his people is going to result in them being completely satisfied in him alone. That whenever God restores his people, They'll be completely satisfied in Him alone and they'll never again be put to shame because they'll never again look anywhere else for fulfillment. They will look to Him alone as their sole source and provider. And it's kind of like the words that, that Peter said. There's a scene, um, I think it's in John chapter 5, where Jesus says some really hard things to a crowd of people that's following them. 
And when he says these hard things, most of the crowds go away. And he turns to the twelve. And he says, will you go away also? And Peter said, well, where will we go? <laughs> you have the words of eternal life. They were his. And they will never turn away because they're completely satisfied in him. He gives them everything they need. And that's the promise. That is one of the promises that God makes in, uh, in what we were in last time, in, in Joel 2, um, 18 through 27. And then the next thing the Lord promises is that He will remove all of the enemies of His people far from them. He's going to remove the enemies. He's going to remove that northern army. That's who represents the enemies of God's people, and he's going to destroy them. His enemies will be removed, they will be destroyed, and they will see corruption away from the presence of the Lord and his people. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Paul gets into that idea in Thessalonians. He says, all of those who are enemies will be removed. They'll be removed, and they'll be destroyed away from the presence of the Lord. And then... Finally, the last promise is that the Lord will be perpetually present with his people, sustaining them for himself. And so they'll never be put to shame. See, he's repeating that idea again, too. He's going to be present. He's not just going to provide for them, but he's going to be there with them, and his presence is going to sustain them. And so they'll never be put to shame. And Jesus echoes that sentiment to us when he says, Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The Lord is always with his people. And so our focus on this is going to be to see how it's fulfilled. And, and since we've just quoted from Jesus, I mean, this scripture is going to be very, very pertinent for us in, as we read these, this passage. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. That's 2 Corinthians 1.20. In other words, what we're looking at here in this passage, what we were looking at in the promise of restoration in, in uh, verses 17 or 18 through 27, all of those promises are fulfilled in Jesus. And the promises that we're going to look at in our passage today, 28 through 32, they're all fulfilled in Jesus, in his person, and in his work. Um, in verses 18 through 27, the Lord has promised his deliverance, his provisions for, and his presence with his people. In verses 28 through 32, which is what we're going to look at tonight, and these four verses... It's, they're, they're short, actually, one, two, three, four, five. These five verses are Joel's third oracle. Remember we said that Joel is broken up into four oracles. So we've had the first one and the second one. And this one is the third one. This is the third message that the Lord spoke through the prophet Joel. And that's what we're looking at. And in this oracle, the Lord is going to describe what it means that he will be perpetually present with his people. At the end of the second oracle, in, in verse 27, he says, Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, 
I'm with you and I'll be with you forever. My presence will be there. And now he's going to explain to them how his presence is going to be with them, what that will look like. So let's look at verse 28. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. It will come about after this. After is the, the key word here. After Yahweh's people have been fully restored to him. See, that's what we... Well, we were just in what I just did the review of from the second oracle from, from verse 18 through 27. It's this promise of restoration. Well, restoration has occurred. And when restoration has occurred? After this. After the Lord's people have been fully restored to Him, then this is going to happen. What we're fixing to read about in in verse 28 through 32. This is important because this full restoration idea, it reaches all the way back before the Babylonian captivity. You see, the Lord's people have never been fully restored to Him. Not like it's described there in, in, in Joel chapter 2. They've never been faithful. They've never worshipped Him alone. They've never completely and totally depended on Him alone. Not since Genesis chapter 3. So, Joel 2, 18-27 is God's promise to fully restore His people to Himself. That's what we've been talking about. So what's coming next happens after this. And in Acts 2, 16-21, in his message at Pentecost, Peter says, the after this is now. The after this is now. God's people are now fully restored to him in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, how, how does he say that? Well, I'm going to turn over there and read to you a little bit. So people are coming out. This, the, the, the apostles have been filled with the Spirit and the disciples, and they're out there, and they're proclaiming the gospel, and they're preaching Christ, and they're doing it, and people are hearing it in their own languages. And it sounds amazing, and it's, it's just messing with people. They don't understand what's going on, which it, it's crazy to me that I'm hearing you speak in my language, and I'm going to think maybe you're drunk. Well, I mean, I don't understand that. It, it's hard enough to speak English when you're drunk, much less speak somebody else's language. So, uh, so anyway, but so that's kind of a messed up idea. But they think maybe these people are drunk. And Peter says, "For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day." But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he goes through the text that we just read. And it shall be in the last days that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And, and he goes through the whole thing. I'm not going to read through it right now for the sake of time. But the point is that Peter says that's now. That's now. God has fully restored his people to himself 
through what Christ has done, through the person and work of Christ. So that's the promise. The promise that's given is that when the Lord's people are fully restored to Him, that He's going to pour out His Spirit upon all mankind. Well, there's two points of emphasis in this verse. And the, the first is the fullness of the Spirit. He says, I will pour out my Spirit. Not a sprinkling, not a dusting, but I will pour out my Spirit. No longer will the Spirit just be manifest at certain times for certain purposes. Which is, when you read through the Old Testament, when the Lord wants to do something with somebody, one of His people, the Spirit of the Lord would come on that person. And then they go and they do this, or the Spirit of the Lord would come to one of the prophets or something, and, and, and the Lord would speak to them and through them, and then, but it was a limited way. But that's not going to be that way anymore. It, what is going to happen is, when God's people are fully restored, the Spirit will be poured full of the Holy Spirit. They're going to be poured full of the Holy Spirit. And have it in abundance. So that's the first emphasis. Is the abundance of the Spirit. Poured out in full. The second emphasis. Of this verse. Is what theologians call. The democratization. Say that six times fast. Of the Spirit. The democratization of the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? He says I will pour out my Spirit. On all mankind. So not just is it going to be poured out fullness and abundance, but it's going to be poured out on all mankind. In, in Galatians 3, 26 through 28, Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what's happened is this pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all mankind. What it's doing is, is it manifests itself in and through God's revelation of himself to his people. And that's how it's going to be illustrated for us. And, and it's going to be illustrated in the verse that, that God manifests himself personally and intimately to all of his people, not just to specific ones here and there. Um, it says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. We'll see what's going to happen if you just kind of think back to what we read from Jeremiah 31 a while ago. They will all, your sons and your daughters, your old men and your young men, they will all know me. Prophesy, dream dreams, and see visions. They're all going to have this revelation of the Lord to them. They're all references to revelation. In the past, the Spirit has come in limited ways to certain selected People, certain prophets, certain kings, certain judges, certain patriarchs, 
The Spirit has come in limited ways to certain people. And the author of Hebrews begins his book by talking about that. So let's just read it. What he says. Verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. See, in the past, God spoke to the fathers through prophets, and he used visions and dreams and, and oracles and different things given to certain specific individuals who would then relay it to everybody else. But the author of Hebrews says, in these last days, God has spoken to all of us. He's spoken to us in His Son. And He's revealed Himself to us in His Son. All of us know Him. So, in the New Covenant, God has filled all of us. All of His people have been filled with the Spirit. And He's spoken to all of us in His Son. Remember what Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. All of us know them, from the greatest even to the least. And we've all seen visions and dreams. Why do you say that? Because if you're in Christ, you have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ because the Spirit has applied that word to your heart and you have seen the glory of God in Christ shining like the sun. You've seen that vision. There's not a Christian alive who hasn't caught a glimpse of that. They have seen the glory of God in Christ, and they've seen the glory of God in the gospel through his word preached and Christ exalted. That's what makes you a Christian is seeing that. And so everyone in the new covenant has seen those things and has done that. And we all prophesy. Well, how, what do you mean by that? Well, Everyone who's in Christ, if you're in Christ, you have told people who the Lord is and what he's done for you. And you will do it again. It's just the way it is. If you're a Christian, you have and will tell others who Christ is and what he's done for you. That's prophecy. See, there's no such thing as a true Christian, someone who's part of the new covenant, who doesn't experience these things. Um, let's look at Ezekiel chapter 36. <clears throat> this is God speaking to us and telling us what He is going to do for His people when He redeems them and restores them. I'm going to start reading verse 24. He said, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful 
to observe my ordinances. Do you want to see how? I mean, if you if you need a text for God sanctifying His people, that's what He said right there. I will put my Spirit within you, and because my Spirit is within you, it's going to bear fruit. You're going to have the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, working itself out in your life because my Spirit is in you, producing it. In verse 29, he says, Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So, just in case anyone hasn't yet understood that there's no external hierarchy or system of evaluation in the kingdom of God in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit goes on to leave us no excuse. He says, even on the slaves, even on the slaves. Not only that, even on the female slaves. And you say, well, why is that significant? Because in that culture, in that time, you want to find the lowest, the lowest ranked human being in society, and it would have been the female slave. He says, even on the female slaves, the male and female slaves, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And all societal, cultural, and physical, in other words, all external distinctions are removed in Christ, period. Well, that's wonderful, and it's very clear in the Scripture. However, at this point, we need to talk about the hermeneutical principle of Scripture interpret Scripture. We need to talk about, right here, we're going to talk about how Scripture interprets Scripture. Why do you think that is? Anybody got a guess? Because Scripture does not contradict itself. Absolutely. And because many people, Scripture does not contradict itself, and many people have used this passage as proof text to override other passages that give instructions on who may and may not serve in different capacities in the church based in some cases on physical and external distinctions. So, how do we reconcile this passage that we're reading right now and passages like Galatians 3.28, there's no male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. How do we reconcile these passages with passages like 1 Timothy 2.12? He said, what is 1 Timothy 2.12? Let's just read it. First Timothy 2.12, Paul says, that I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now there's a lot more to that in the context, but I'm not going to go into that. I think that's enough for our purpose. How do we reconcile that what we just read. Or the fact that Paul, who wrote both Galatians and 1 Timothy, he assumes that an elder candidate is going to be male. How do I know that? Well, he, he assumes that because in his list of qualifications for deacons and elders, he says that they should be one woman men. They should be the husband of one wife. That doesn't mean that that they have to be married, and it doesn't mean that uh, their wife couldn't 
have passed away or something like that couldn't happen, but it's just saying they should, they have to be a one woman man. And he's assuming when he says that. I wouldn't use that particular verse as a law to say that only a man could be an elder just based on that, but I would say he's assuming that your elder candidate is going to be a man. And you take that along with 1 Timothy 2.12, and you seem to have a problem with Galatians 3.28 and what we just read. Or at least a lot of people present it that way. People try to pit the scriptures against each other. So how do you reconcile it? Well, there's a couple of things I know for certain. And one is that the Holy Spirit is not contradicting in the different passages. And one of them doesn't override the other. I know that too. So how do we understand them? How do we reconcile them? I really don't think it's terribly difficult if we're willing to let Scripture interpret Scripture and submit to what it says. So our passage from Joel is dealing with our changed relationship with God and each other in the world. That's what it's dealing with. We have a changed relationship with God. He's restored us to himself. We have a changed relationship with each other. He has restored us to each other in Christ equally. And we have a changed relationship with the world. And it's also talking about our value in the kingdom of God. All of God's people are equally reconciled to God in Christ. And we're all completely equal in value. Actually, we all have no value or merit in and of ourselves. Our value simply rests in the fact that God eternally set his love upon us. God set his love upon us and he reconciled us to himself in Christ. That's where our value comes from. So we're all equal. And also, no matter what other role we may be given, we're all given the role, the commission, to be an ambassador for Christ and his kingdom in this world. We're given that role, everybody. And we're to fulfill that role in and through whatever other roles we may be given in the church or in the body of Christ. So, how do I want to look at this to to see if we can reconcile it, I'm going to say that letting Scripture interpret Scripture, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to look at verses 4 through 27. And I think this is the appropriate answer for this. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's actually talking about the use of spiritual gifts. But in it, he's talking about the fact that God gives people differently and he calls us to different roles. In verse 4, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effect of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, 
to another various kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. See, there's lots of different roles in the body of Christ. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And I'm going to stop there. Paul goes on to give a list of different offices and, and things in the church and, and things that, that people are called to and gifted to. But here's the point. The point is there's different roles in the body of Christ. And God specifically outlines what those roles are and what, what the qualifications are for each role. Period. And that doesn't in any way negate what we're reading here in Joel or what we read in Galatians 3. It's clear. God's assigned different roles for different people in the church. He's given different criteria for determining what those roles are and who they're assigned to. Spiritual equality doesn't do away with God's established criteria or individual giftings. Spiritual equality just means that every role is equally glorious and precious in the sight of God. That's what it means. Amen. And we're to glorify God and exalt Christ through those roles that God has given us and assigned to us. And they're all equal. That's what Scripture teaches. And here's the thing. We can either submit to it or we can rebel against it. So, to paraphrase something that Paul said in a different context, and this is kind of my way of thinking about it, if anyone has a mind to be contentious or argumentative about this, my plan is just to continue allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture and submit to what it says. That's my plan. Uh, 
Let's look at verse 30 and 31. He goes on. He says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this is apocalyptic language. And it's meant to indicate that what is happening is supernatural. It's supernatural. We read some of that same language in, in Jeremiah a ago when we were introducing it. And he says, I'm the God of the heavens. I'm the God that shakes the heavens. The God that controls the sun and the moon and the stars. And what he's getting across to us is that God is doing this work that's coming. This work of redemption and restoration of his people and this work of bringing the spirit and filling his people these things are supernatural it's the work of god alone god's going to come and he's going to act in time and space to redeem his people and vanquish his enemies and he's going to do it on the great and terrible day of the lord or awesome day of the lord and when he does it there's going to be a discernible shaking of the created order. There's been a discernible shaking of the created order. Let me show you something from Joshua 10. And has God done this? Yes. He's done it in history. He did it in Joshua 10, verses, in verses 12 through 14. Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar, and the sun stopped in the middle of the sky? and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of the man for the Lord fought for Israel. And the sun, the sun stood still and the moon stopped because the Lord just stopped the rotation of the earth for a day during that battle. Well, in Matthew 27, we're going to see another manifestation. Of, and it's actually the fulfillment of what is prophesied here in 30 and 31 of Joel chapter 2. Matthew 27, verse 45. Jesus is, the setting is Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's 
taking the sins of all of his people upon himself. He is, he is the spotless Lamb of God, giving himself for the sin of his people. And he's hanging on the cross under the wrath of God. It says, now the sixth hour, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. It went dark. The sun stopped shining in the middle of the day. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Yeah, the sixth hour is noon. So from noon to three, the brightest part of the day, the sun just stopped shining. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, my have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God, the Lord took hold of the veil that separated, that symbolically separated God and man, that kept us from experiencing the presence of the Lord. And he ripped that thing in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to me. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. See, whenever the Lord came, whenever he came in his power and he redeemed and restored his people and reconciled them to himself and defeated their enemies, He shook the heavens and the earth. He shook it. And he darkened the sun. It was manifest. It was, it was made plain what was going on. Verse 32, he says, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. From Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So, verse 32 is God's ultimate answer to the curse that has come upon the people of Judah. And even upon the land and the city itself, because if you remember the cursing, the people were under a curse, and they were captured, and they were killed, and they were carried off into captivity. But the land itself was destroyed. The vegetation was stripped and the city was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and burned. Everything was subject to futility because of the idolatry of the people and their failure to trust Yahweh alone. They failed to trust the Lord alone. Verse 32 is God's answer to that. It's also God's answer to the curse that 
has come upon all humanity. It began in Genesis 3. It came upon all humanity and the entire created order which was subject to futility. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the whole creation cries out and moans in anticipation because God has subjected it to futility under this curse because of the idolatry and self-reliance of Adam and Eve. Looking to themselves and their own understanding rather than trusting God and following Him. And so, here's God's answer. The answer is that Yahweh, the Lord, is going to deliver and restore His people. And in that day, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, will be saved. Calls on the name of the Lord, though. What's that mean? There's a lot of people think different things about what that means. Does it just mean, hey, you say, Jesus is Lord, so now I'm a Christian. And I'm saved, I'm delivered. Or does it mean praying a prayer and asking for forgiveness? What does it mean? Well, it has context. That's a, that is actually... The Lord in His mercy and His providence has given us examples of what it means to call on the name of the Lord in history and in Scripture. Calls on the name of the Lord is not just something random that Joel said there. It's, it's something that has been used before and there is a context to it. And it's intentional. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, will be saved. What's that mean? So let's look at uh, Genesis 12. And we'll see what it meant for Abraham. In Genesis 12, I'm actually going to start reading in verse 1. I'll read through verse 8. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all the possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. They set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appealed to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent and with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. You know what it looked like for Abram? It looked like leaving everything that he knew behind. leaving everything that he knew behind and entrusting himself to the word of this God who called him out. 
this Lord called him out. Come out and follow me. Follow me. And I will make you great. And I'll give you an inheritance. And I will bless the whole earth through you. If you'll just follow me. That's what it meant for Abram to call on the name of the Lord. And then in 1 Kings 18... I'm going to read verses 17 through 24. Don't get nervous. We're not going to go through the whole story of Elijah and the prophets and Baal, but let's just read 17 through 24. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left, a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen, and let them choose one ox for themselves, and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that's a good idea. And I'm not going to go through the story. Most of you probably know it. But all didn't show up, but the Lord did. The Lord did. What did calling on the name of the Lord mean for Elijah? It meant that he put himself in the Lord's hands and Elijah was going to die. If the Lord didn't come through right there, he's outnumbered at least 950 to 1. Plus probably all the people would have been against him too because they were all claiming to worship God, worshiping him by all at the same time. And here's Elijah starting to trouble. Elijah's about to die if the Lord doesn't come through, but he entrusts himself completely, completely to the word of the Lord, to what God has told him. And that's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. It means to put all your eggs in one basket to submit to, to follow, and to trust in Him as your one and only all-sufficient Savior and provider. It's not simply a matter of professing Christ. It's not simply a matter of praying a prayer. You will pray, and you will profess Him. But calling upon the name of the Lord means that you put yourself in his hands. You call upon him as your only provision, as your only source of protection and provider. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. And they will be delivered. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever does that, will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors 
whom the Lord calls. Now, this prophecy was spoken to citizens of Jerusalem in Judah immediately prior to being overrun and carried off into captivity by the Babylonian army. And they would have understood survivors to mean those who survived the captivity and were alive whenever the Lord brought restoration. That would have been their understanding. This would have been a great encouragement to them all. I would say that any who heard this and who entrusted themselves to the Lord and his coming deliverance were saved because they were his sheep who heard his voice speaking through his word and they believed what he said, even though they didn't fully understand it. They just knew they were trusting in the Lord and his restoration. Well, we, the Lord's people, are to trust in the Lord. And we're to trust in his revealed purpose to and for us. But we aren't in control of the time. See, we're doing the same thing they are. They were looking forward to this restoration that we've been reading about this coming. We know it's come. Now we're looking forward to uh, his return. And all of that was just something that aside that occurred to me when I thought that. They were looking forward to this restoration that God promised them. And they didn't have any idea what it was going to look like. I mean, they did not have a clue what this restoration was going to look like whenever Christ came and delivered his people and restored them. But that's now happened. Now we're looking forward to his return in glory to completely eradicate the curse, remove all sin, and consummate his eternal kingdom. And I've been willing to bet that it's probably not going to look anything like what most of us are expecting. It's going to be far greater and far more glorious. Um, so those who call on the name of the Lord are the ones who escape the survivors whom the Lord calls. See, they're all one and the same people. It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, those who escape, and the survivors whom the Lord calls, it's all the same people. Judah was perishing at the time. This world that we live in is perishing. It's passing away. Most of the people of Judah perished with Judah. And most of the people of this world will perish with this world. But in that day, those whom the Lord calls, those sheep who hear his voice, they will escape. They'll survive and they will call on the name of the Lord and they'll be saved. Peter says that day has come. Deliverance has been accomplished. The time is Jesus, when Jesus began his ministry after he was baptized in the beginning of the book of Mark, it says Jesus went about preaching the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the gospel. And I'll, I'll, I'll finish up with Acts in Acts 2. Um, Peter's quoting from Joel. He begins his sermon quoting from Joel and he ends it quoting from Joel. And I'm going to read verses 37 through 39 because what happened was 
when they heard the sermon, they heard the message of God's deliverance. And they knew what Peter was talking about because they knew the prophets. When they heard this, and Peter says, this deliverance that God promised you in Joel, it's been accomplished. And it's accomplished in Jesus. Verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the promise of your word. We thank you for redeeming us. We thank you for accomplishing redemption and restoration and vanquishing all of your enemies and ours. we thank you for calling us out filling us with your spirit oh Lord we just pray that you give us fresh fire to prophesy in your name to tell people who you are and what you've done for us Lord we thank you for all these things in Jesus name Amen